HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Tabard Inn, new American cuisine in one of Washington, D.C.'s oldest hotels, located in DuPont Circle. For more information, visit tabardin.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, where a member-supported podcast network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. This year, we're celebrating 10 years of food radio. For the past decade, we've been taking you behind the scenes of farms, restaurants, breweries, school cafeterias, and more. It's been 10 years, and we're just getting started. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Hello, this is Dana Cowan, and you are listening to Speaking Broadly on Heritage Radio Network. Each week, I interview an amazing person in the world of food and hospitality and learn about their journey, their travel to success, through failure, and just all around the block. Today, I have someone on the show who indeed has been all around the block in a great way. Um, She's known as a fan favorite on Bravo's Top Chef, a cookbook author, an activist, and probably my favorite accolade, an awesome dancer. (laughs) My guest is none other than the fabulous Carla Hall, who's just published a book called Carla Hall's Soul Food. Welcome, Carla. Thank you, Dana. What a great intro. <laughs> well, we, I feel like we should be dancing. There should, you should be dancing hands. You know, it's audio. We can't see you. You're so accustomed to... Thank you. You're so accustomed to getting audiences revved up like you did on the chew, the just being in that audience. I'm like, oh my God, I'll do anything for you. <laughs> um, so on this show, we talk a lot about journeys, as I mentioned in the intro. And when I was reading your book, I was struck again and again about how this book is a weaving together of so many journeys of yours. So in one way, it's a journey back to what your ancestors ate. Um, You were thinking about that as you were developing recipes. Mm -hmm. In one way, um, it was a very real journey because you and Genevieve Coe, your co-author and um, Gabrielle Stabile, if I pronounced that right, mm-hmm. your photographer, took a, a, a trip through the south for 10 days and met some amazing farmers and amazing cooks. And then I think it's also, it seems like it's, you know, part of your personal journey when I read about, you know, when you were, were a model and how that affected your thoughts about food. And then you, you know, had your lunch business and you, um, 
then I had all this French technique and you're really Frenchy and like everything was going to be Frenchy because that's the way it's done and you gave up <laughs> your past in a way and you've come back to it. So I feel like doing this book is also such a, um, the arc of the journey of your life to date, though, you know, the, the arc just moves out into the future. So I wanted to just start maybe with the, the very first journey, which is the ancestral journey, because in so many ways, um, since the book is about soul food, and as you were saying, it's sort of like a spiritual and not a hymn, like what, um, what do you think about in terms of your ancestors, the food, their journey, and this amazing book? Well, I, part, of, part of the journey was when I had my DNA done through African ancestry. And until you find out of what the results are going to be, you are, you're just sitting there and you're like, okay, I have an idea of what I think those results are. And then when you find out in that moment, like that moment when the, the results are revealed, you are like, oh, the knowing. It's, it's, it's almost like you were adopted and meeting your parents. That's amazing. Were you surprised? I mean, there's Portuguese. You have some Portuguese in yes. there. Maybe that was surprising or not really? Portuguese. I didn't really think about the European side mm-hmm. because I knew that was there and I didn't know what it was. I thought that um, the results were going to be, oh, you're Egyptian. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. <laughs> because I, I, I feel like I, I connect with Nefertiti. <laughs> Nefertiti's profile. It's, it's, I was going to say, it's your beautiful mm-hmm. head, sure. Um, even though intellectually I know that slaves did not come from there and it was West Africa, but, you know, just physically I was thinking, oh, Nefertiti. And then when I found out it was the Yoruba people from Nigeria, and not just Nigeria, but, you know, the tribe, and then the booby people from Bioko Island, which is off the coast of Cameroon. And when, so that was a totally different result. So my mother's family came from Nigeria. They're a Yoruba. My father's family, the booby people from Bioko Island. And it was Michael Twitty who was there who gave me those results. Oh, that's fascinating. Yes. I didn't know that, because I, 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 he loves the book, but I didn't know that he played that role. Yes, wow. yes. And that was five years after finding out about the Nigerian side. So it's it's this constant discovery. And he was the one, he has his textbooks there and, and his history books. So just for any listeners who might not know, he is um, a scholar, an African-American scholar. Mm-hmm. And um, the name of his book? The Souls of... Uh, uh, soul... Wait, Kitchen... Wait. Um, okay, well, we'll skip that. Okay. But I see it. Michael, we love you, and we're just forgetting the name of your... Kitchen Soul? Ki- the Cooking Gene. The Cooking Gene. Oh, yeah. Yes. So, so, so Michael has had done all of this research, and I, and I had read his book, and I was a huge fan of his. And he is going through his books, and he was saying, okay, let's see where the slave ships came from the booby people and he goes it's this tiny island and he says only three slave ships came from that island so that alone three out of thousands right yes that's incredible and to 
to get that information. It's so specific. And I, I'm, I'm, I'm getting too. chills. Me too. And so when you go to the African American Museum, and there is one place on the lower level where these slave ships are named. And so I, I haven't looked for those names, but the fact that they are listed and known, it's that. What year would that have been? Oh, gosh. I don't know. Yeah. But to, to be able to pinpoint it, that is amazing. Right. Yeah. You know, um, I don't know where in the 400 years and how far I go, but, but to think, okay, now fast forward, next year will be the 400th anniversary when slavery started. Wow. Which is, again, another journey and another <sighs> just overwhelming and just incredible um, point in time in history. Horrifying. Yeah. So um, when you were, think you were thinking about the, the foods that they may have eaten in these two remarkable places. Yes. And yes. Uh, you sort of brought that forward into this book. Yes, yes. So I wanted to imagine, I'm going to wait for that. I wanted to imagine what would my ancestors be eating today if they were coming over today. And I couldn't have done this book five years ago. There are grains that are now showing up in markets and stores that weren't available or we didn't have access to that I didn't even know. So I'm really fascinated mm -hmm. by this notion of expanding our knowledge of um, all foods, but grains and beans in particular. Mm -hmm. We both share a love of those. So um, tell us about some of those because I think you use sorghum, sorghum, in the book. millet. Um, I didn't use Fonio, but that Fonio is another one and commonly used in Senegal. Um, so those, just those alone. And even using, um, getting back to cooking grits, you know, even though it's, it's a grain and it was introduced here in the, in the United States, you know, through the native indigenous, but getting back to cooking it very cleanly. Right. Without all the stuff. Right. So you want to talk about your... The uh, the water cornbread, uh, hot water cornbread, hot water cornbread. Yes, yes. <laughs> you know, I love I love to mention to uh, Northerners. I said, do you know hot water cornbread? Like no, no. And also, it sounds very tricky because you know you look at the ingredients. Like, yeah, no problem. But you're so good in the direction, saying, just watch out, you people. <laughs> you think it's going to be easy, but it's both really easy and really hard. And it's it's one of those things that is very simple. You know, my grandmother would just take white cornmeal, not yellow cornmeal, but white cornmeal, and she would throw some fat in there, and it, it, that fat would probably come out of the bacon can. And then some, she would just pour enough hot water in that, you know, it would work. And interestingly enough, my mother makes really great hot water cornbread. And I talk about my mother not cooking that well. Yeah. And so when I she... I thought it was like not at all. But right, it's good to know she has a dish. She has five dishes. Okay. You know, um, but what's so funny when I talk to somebody and they say, oh, I don't, I don't know how to make hot water cornbread. If my mother's there, she's like, oh, I do. <laughs> I know how to make hot water cornbread. <laughs> then what's the trick? The trick is to add the, the hot water into the, the cornmeal and let the cornmeal bloom. So honestly, add enough water. And I've given a really good recipe, so the ratios are good. But 
allowing that cornmeal to just bloom. But I had to do it several times. And I had started doing this recipe, um, and I was going to change it. Because I, I did a cook-off with Clinton on the chew. Oh, my goodness. And I decided to do my grandmother's collard greens, braised collard greens with hot water cornbread. And Clinton had done some cheesy broccoli cauliflower thing, casserole. And the tasting table, um, they were the judges, the people at the tasting oh, table. okay. And um, they overwhelmingly chose Clinton's cheesy broccoli cauliflower Such thing. Such uneducated palates just <laughs> going for the, the fat bombs. <laughs> and I was so, I think I got one vote. I was so heartbroken. I mean, I really was. And I didn't really tell them. But I, I was really heartbroken. Because you're like, this is my past. I put it on a plate and you just rejected me. Yes. Yes. Exactly right. So did you go, you went back at it then? I went back at it. And so when I was doing this book, I said, I'm going to change the recipe so that people can get it. And Wait, it's softer. Wait, are you having a rematch? You guys, you and couldn't have to have a rematch. You have to have a rematch. Yes. With with the knowledge. Yes. Um. With that, the knowledge that I'm hoping to educate people about what it is. Uh-huh. Um, and, and even then, I probably didn't do it as well, and I left it to the, the culinary kitchen, the kitchen to do it, and they, they don't really know it, you know, so they can't really get it. Um, but then when I was doing this book, I said, I'm going to change the recipe. I'm going to do it more like uh, pat a choux and add eggs and, you know, make it lighter. The day that we were shooting for the book... So it's a journey just with this hot water cornbread. Yeah, just one. The day that we were shooting for the book, I'm like, what am I doing? And Genevieve is saying, we're ready for the hot water cornbread. And I'm like, oh, I'm trying to make sure that it's right. And and I was like, what am I doing? Why am I changing my family's history for another culture? That's another goosebump moment for me. Right? Because right. the, whole, the whole book is coming about coming back to you. Yes. Why yes. are you going to sort of fake it? Right. But for I, somebody else. I for mean, somebody so. else. And I yeah. think in that moment, there's so much of my life that I've done that. And so I was in this crossroads at that moment with this hot water cornbread. And it was as if my grandmother's spirit was like, what the heck are you doing? Right. You know? Good for her for coming through and talking to you and giving you a little yeah. finger wag. What are the other moments that you feel like um, you know, you've had that experience of doing something for someone else that really isn't necessarily true to you? I think um, you can talk about fried chicken. I mean, honestly, I wouldn't even do fried chicken. I didn't even... I didn't, I'd, I could probably, in the book, I talk about how I could measure my life with my journey with fried chicken. Um, and, and it wasn't that I changed it for somebody else. I just wouldn't do it. You wouldn't do it because you felt like it was too much ab- about the South mm-hmm. and not a- enough about what was right at this moment. Right, right. It just, it was part of a, a stereotype that I didn't want to own. It was part of being put in a box that I didn't want to be in. So it was all of this going on that was in my head. And um, so opening a fried chicken restaurant, and you know who, I don't even know if we should mention it, but I don't care. Um, <laughs> the person who told me when I said to him, this chef who had a lot of restaurants, and I said, what should I do if I'm going to do a restaurant? 
And it was Mario Batali. And Mario said to do fried chicken. Mario said you should do fried chicken. And what do you think about that now? Um, I think I think it was a good move. You do. I do. And it was because, I mean, the failure of my restaurant had nothing to do with what we were serving. But that was the start of me getting back truly um, to my culture. Because every single dish... I, I knew that I had to come in and acknowledge this is part of my history. This, I, I have to just, you know, to use the expression, lean into this. And I knew that all of the sides, at that time when I was opening the restaurant, I said I want to show African Americans that their food, their celebration foods, don't have to be full of fat. And I made the decision to make them all, all my sides vegetarian. And we were nut free. Oh my goodness. So all of that and challenging all of those stereotypes. And um, so it, it, no, it was, it was a step in the right direction. And I, and I think I spent two and a half years working with that, um, developing the restaurant. So I, I think if I didn't have those two and a half years, I wouldn't have been coming to this book. I needed that time. And what else happened to make the book and the restaurant happen? Because I feel like it that is in the notion of journey, not that we have to hew so directly to the line, but um, it is sort of the coming to terms with yourself, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And um, do you, did you feel a lot of pressure to be other you know, um, once I said I was going to do the restaurant, no. But before that, before that, I mean, absolutely. I just you know, you're growing up. You grew up, um, as you say, like on the right side of the yeah. tracks. Good part of town. Great school. Mm-hmm. Um, was your father a doctor? Oh no, my grandfather was a doctor. Grandfather was a doctor. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, I'm just wondering, like, what that was like in your childhood. Uh, and if the seeds were planted then of sort of shaping the outward person who you were and hiding a little bit of the internal person. I think I was really shy growing up. Okay, that's shocking. I, I, I tell people that. And I'm actually borderline introvert, extrovert, which people don't realize. And I, So I, can, I love people, though. I mean, I honestly love people. I love being with people. I love hearing their stories. I just, I really love people. But after I've been out and with people, I have to retreat back and do nothing and just sort of, you know, recharge. Um, but when I was younger, that that sense of self and self-doubt and not feeling um, confident where I would get on a path that somebody or something bumped me to that path and I would stay on it until like what's an example of that so um when I was doing theater right I wanted to I saw my first play here in New York City and my uncle was in bubbling brown sugar and I saw these actors just become these characters and I was fascinated just fascinated because I was so I was so introverted and I was just like what what this world that's happening on this stage what are you saying to me what <laughs> what is happening here and then I left there and I started mimicking this one actor's song like constantly and for a month I was doing that at home and my mother said we're going to put you into theater 
and there was a class at the YMCA and my mother being a single mother she would always have these classes basically as babysitters when she was working or doing other things so we were we were busy and my sister had to come along for the ride because we were you know we were both going to be dropped off at the same place (laughs) um and i loved it and i it was i was 12 at the time and that was the opening of this theater. And in theater, you know, it was all about dare to be you and dare to be different. And so I was given the permission to be this, you know, quote unquote, weird person or not quite with everyone else. And I was like, okay. <laughs> So that sounds like such a positive experience. It was. It was amazing. And then I went to theater camp. And then when I got that was in Swanee, Tennessee. And then my mother found the National Academy Theater. And there was this woman, Ruth Sweet, who was from New York, who was in Nashville. And she did this academy. And I, and I was there th- all throughout high school. Wow. And um, and did the theater is theater what led you to modeling? Um, the theater led me, unfortunately, to accounting because I I, <laughs> <laughs> I didn't get accepted into Boston University because I wanted to go to that conservatory, and I auditioned. I didn't. They were going to defer my admissions for a year. I'm like, oh, oh no, I I'm leaving home, and my sister. Why was did going, you want to leave so much? I wanted to because. My, from ninth grade to 12th grade, I had said, oh, I'm going to go to Boston University. I'm going to leave. I'm going to, you know, so I'm leaving home. So in my head, I'm taking this journey to somewhere else that's not Nashville. And so even though the place where I wanted to go didn't happen, I was like, the journey can still happen. The journey <laughs> has to happen, you know. And my sister was going away to college. So she went to Howard University. So I said, okay. And I, I didn't even do my homework about Howard because had I done my homework, I would have known that they had a really great fine arts program, which is where Debbie Allen went. Huh. Um, but you, you did end up doing accounting there. I did accounting. Has that stood you in good stead? Like, do you use accounting skills? I, I do. I still love a good spreadsheet. And I think with accounting, it's all about process. Uh-huh. And cooking is about process. So I have that creative side, but I'm, I'm, very, I'm very methodical. One of my pet peeves um, is inefficiency. So I think that comes from this very, you know, exacting. Although I can, I can still be creative and loose in the kitchen, but in terms of my creative process, it really, I, I see, I have a vision of where I want to go. And I'm like, okay, if I'm going across the room, how am I going to get there? Is there something in the way that I have to go around? And if I have to go around it, what's the most efficient way to go around that thing to get to where I'm going? That's such a great life skill. I mean, I assume you apply it to rooms, but you also apply it to things that block you in your life. Mm-hmm. Right? I do. Like, for example, when you were catering, um, in D.C., you didn't really, I mean, you really didn't want to be a caterer. Right, true. Um, but then when you're on Top Chef, you're like, okay, I want to do this because I don't want to be a caterer. Right, That's right. like an excellent way to get around yes, the catering yes, block. Yes, <laughs> So a lot of times if I, even, even moving to um, everything that, I'm trying to think of an example, um... I left my accounting job because I didn't like it. And I was afraid of being 40 and hating my job. So I had to move. 
So I look at, I and people will say, weren't you afraid to go to Paris with, you know, no job, one telephone number, 10 words of French? No, I was afraid to hate my job. So it's, I look at the thing that bumped me off the path, that got me on another path, that I don't think about sometimes where I'm going. I think about what I'm running away from. That's often a question. Are you running towards or are you running away? Exactly. And when you run away from, um, your choice is actually limitless, mm-hmm. right? Because it, you just know you don't want to be in Nashville. You're going to be right. someplace else. You know you don't want to be catering or doing accounting. You're going to do something else. Exactly. Right. I think that does take an enormous amount of confidence to do that, though. Um, I mean, what do you feel like the life skills that you've developed in order to leap have been? I think that, um, and I talk, I talk a lot about this with Top Chef, and my fear is being judged, I have a fear of being judged, and the universe puts me smack dab on Top Chef. Um, but what that experience did for me was to become comfortable with being uncomfortable. Yeah. Does one ever become comfortable with being uncomfortable? Maybe say yes. No, but you, you don't become comfortable with it, but you can sit in it. So now what I would do, if I'm uncomfortable, I honestly, I, I'm like, where do I feel uncomfortable? Is it in my stomach? Is it in my heart? Is it where is it? And I will observe it. I would just sit there and observe it and feel it. And does that observing um, sort of take the pin out? Yes. You know, it just sort of, well, I saw it. Now you can just, you can stay there, but I'm moving on. Yes, yes. Yeah. And another, another instance where I had this experience, I was at the lodge at Woodlock and I had done this. No, I wasn't. I was at, um, <laughs> no, I wasn't there. No, I was at Canyon Ranch and they had this high ropes challenge. And there are 18 different modules that you can go. And I'm afraid of heights. And so you are 36 feet in the air. And you're, you're buckled in. And I said, I have to be able to feel what my body feels like if I were to fall. Okay, I wouldn't like that feeling. Right. Yeah. I wouldn't <laughs> like, so I said, I have to do it because I'm, I'm standing there and I'm, I'm almost immobilized with fear. But is it irrational fear or is it rational fear? And if there are spots all around me and I am buckled in and they've checked my, my harness and everything, it's irrational fear because I cannot fall. I can't fall to the ground. Right. So at one point, I just, I said, I have to allow myself to hang here on this rope. And I did. And I said, okay, I have to feel what this safety net feels like in order to move on. And once I did that, I could do all of the elements very easily because I said, all right, this fear makes no sense here. So you can hold on to the, not that you're trying to hold on to it, but the the fear can remain with you for the right situation, but it's eliminated for the wrong one. Correct. So you know that you're safe here. Mm -hmm. You don't have to have the fear. I'm I'm curious about the notion of being um, judged as like a core fear. where do you think that comes from? My love language, my love language is um, words of affirmation. Uh, yeah. So being complimentary, you know, saying, hey, Carla, great job. You know, so if you're going to tell me not a great job, then it's like, <gasps> like, wait. That freezes you up. Yes. And um, right. But you can get constructive criticism 
But still, it's if somebody comes at me and it's very forceful and negative, which is why, and I didn't realize this about myself, but when I was looking for kitchens to work in after culinary school, I said to the chefs that I was interviewing with, are you a screamer? And I, didn't, I, didn't, I knew nothing about love languages, but I knew that that does not motivate me. Right. You cannot motivate me by screaming at me. I will shut down. That seems a very common human reaction, <laughs> but um, I guess some people are motivated, right? Yeah, and so. they stay in those kitchens and thrive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But when people would come to my kitchen and I'm interviewing them, I would ask them, are you motivated? Do you need somebody to scream at you? Do you need me to be like after you or are you a self-motivator? If you needed that, I'm not the one. I, I would tell them and they, they may not have even known that they were like that. But I would say... But it's good to bring up the question. Because right? yes. I have to think about it and be like, I wonder what does motivate me. Because mm-hmm. I'm not sure everybody thinks and mm-hmm. takes that time. Like, you know, what makes me do my best job? Right. And for you. But is that tied to fear? Um, or judging, sorry. Is that tied I, to judging? I think it is tied a little bit to judging. It's It's this... I felt like it at the time it was. I remember I remember being at the judge's table thinking, oh, my God, they're, they're going to reject me, and I'm afraid of rejection. So maybe that, but maybe yeah, rejection is the higher order of right. judging. Right. No one likes it. I mean, of course, I don't, no one likes to be rejected. Right. But um, so that Top Chef experience time after time mm-hmm. in that crazy situation must have been very hard. It was really hard. But there was one moment, it was Restaurant Wars season five and I was it was either me or Radhika who was going to go home and I remember being so afraid I mean I I felt my heart like pounding in my chest like not wanting to go home and then at some point I said nobody ever died here (laughs) at the judges table nobody's ever died and I'm like what again that irrational fear yeah Nobody ever died here. That is the ultimate fear that we're going to die. And I said, nobody ever died here. I'm okay. Uh, Carla, you could leave here and be okay. And I didn't go home. And I remember looking at the judges, like scared, 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 until like, wait, nobody's ever died. And like relaxing into that and then going on to look at them in their face, which they don't want that either. The oh, judges don't want that. <laughs> like, I'm looking in their eyes. Look down at the ground. <laughs> exactly. Don't make me feel bad. <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. Because you've been on that side. You've been a judge. Yeah. You don't want somebody looking at you as you know that. The... No, because then the heart as a judge is boom, boom, boom. Oh, yes, know? yes. Yeah. Um, so when I didn't go home, I was like, okay. Then I was free to do, because the ultimate had just, happened like okay I didn't I thought I was gonna go home I didn't go home now I know what that felt like now I'm free to be me and that's when I started doing better right that that freedom is uh so important to be able to be yourself which is interestingly it seems like it's the lesson you learn again and again yes yes and it's an important one and you learn it but mm-hmm. it just that lesson can be taught in so many different ways. Yes. Like you don't le- just learn it once. You don't, you know, learn it with the way you dress and then it applies to everything. Mm-hmm. Or you don't do it for your cooking and then it applies to everything. So it's, you know, it's um coming to understand who you are and not trying to be anyone else is like it is a life lesson. It will keep happening. Yes. Even though yes. now you've had this restaurant, which was really true to who you are. You have this book, which is really true to who you are. Okay, we're gonna take a quick break and when we come back we're gonna um talk a, a little bit about um that 
the restaurant and the, the chew and some of the challenges of setting something up for tremendous success and then having it taken away for things that are really outside of your control. So um, we'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Tabard Inn. Tabard Inn, Washington, D.C.'s quintessential hotel, is located on a quiet, tree-lined street just five blocks from the White House. Vibrant yet unassuming, the Tabard is comprised of 40 sleeping rooms, each unique in character and design. Feast on an eclectic American cuisine in their acclaimed restaurant, or enjoy a cocktail and listen to live jazz in one of their cozy Victorian seating areas. Mingle with travelers from around the world who find the Tabard the only place to stay when taking their travels to Washington. For more information, visit tabardin.com. Are you enjoying this podcast? Heritage Radio Network has lots more. My name is Carrie Diamond, and I'm the host of Radio Cherry Bomb here on HRN. The show features interviews with the coolest, most creative women in and around the world of food. We've spoken to icons like Ina Garten, Christina Tosi, and Padma Lakshmi, and brought you new voices like Michelle Johnson of The Chocolate Barista and Lisa Lidwinski of Sister Pie. You can find Radio Cherry Bomb wherever you listen to podcasts and on heritageradionetwork.org. Welcome back. This is Dana Cowan, and you are listening to Speaking Broadly on Heritage Radio Network. I am so delighted to have in my home studio, such as it is, my couch, uh, mm-hmm. one of my favorite people, Carla Hall. Why is Carla Hall one of my favorite people? Because she is smart, accomplished, open, and always looking ahead. And one of the ways in which you've been really open that I really appreciate is you've taken on really big challenges, like Top Chef is a big challenge, and um, the Chew at the beginning, I'm sure over time it became less of a challenge, but it's a big challenge to launch a a big, big show. Daytime that had never been done, daytime Mm -hmm. talk, food TV, never been done before. And you hadn't done, you have done reality, but you hadn't done daytime it was really different yeah um and then you had the show one of the things that interested me about your evolution on the chew and i feel like there's lessons from it which is why i bring it up is that you realized at some point that you'd been cast in a supporting role rather than in a central role yes which knowing you and your skill just makes me mad but you know um Having experienced it, why do you think that happened? And for all of us who are put in secondary roles, mm-hmm. um, you know, from time to time, but don't really know how to get out of it. Right. Um, how, you know, how do you think that happened? And then, like, how do you crack that? I think it happened because I was new to television in that role as a host and being the person who had carried a show before. So when you look at the five of us, it was Mario Batali, he'd had shows before. Michael Simon, he'd had shows before. Clinton Kelly, he'd had shows before. And then you have two two people who happened to be women who had not had shows before. Well, Daphne had worked on a show. I did Top Chef, but I had never hosted. And so not only were we juniors 
in terms of our experience, but we were also women. So it was a double whammy in terms of what we were getting paid, what the expectations were, and and just how we are in terms, I think, nurturing and wanting to su- be su- supporting mm-hmm. the group. That's so interesting. But it's that, um, that support that's such an automatic default as opposed to wanting to be the leader out front, grab the publicity, which is just something you hear echoed, you know, sh- chef after chef, because that's the world that I spend the most time with women and going, boy, that must be so frustrating, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and so when you, are, when you are supporting the group, it is a backup singer role, and you're not at the front. I mean, um, that movie, 25 Feet from Fame. I love that movie. Love that movie. But upsetting, but right? extraordinary. So... You know, to describe what that is. So that was it was a movie about these backup singers, and they're 25 feet from the center stage, from that front microphone. And oftentimes these were the most talented um, performers, but... Those they, women had incredible voices. Yes. And also, some of the, rec- some of the backup singing actually made the recording. Yes. Right, yes. like the, the there was a Stones um, song that like would be nothing without that backup singer. Mm-hmm. Anyway. So it was that, and I and what what also created that environment was um, making the transition from being on a show like Top Chef, where where I was just doing what I did, and the cameras were capturing it, to being a host, where now you have a seven-minute segment or five, and you're talking to the camera, you're talking to the host, you're sharing something about yourself, and you you are sometimes interviewing somebody and making that all look easy. And it's not. <laughs> <laughs> that's the lesson. It's not. It's not. Yeah. I bet that's right. Um, but then Gladys Knight was on the show. Yes. And you didn't get to cook with her. Right. Which was kind of ridiculous you're right I mean Gladys Knight who is from the south and as an African-American Gladys Knight from that generation and I grew up in the 60s she was the epitome of talk about you know this R&B music and and just being part of my childhood Um, and I didn't get to cook with her and I remember going in the dressing room um, to intru- to introduce myself, and Gladys was already out and looking at the food. But um, one of the people who was traveling with her said, "Oh, Gladys is so excited to meet you, and she's been talking. She watches the show. She That's loves you. Awesome. <laughs> and you know, and I'm like, oh, this is great. I don't get to cook with her, but and 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 so she, Michael was assigned to cook with her. Michael Simon was assigned to cook with Gladys, and they made a smothered um, chicken dish. And I'm like, oh! I mean, stab me in the heart, heart once because I'm not cooking with Gladys Knight, but stab me again that you're making something that is actually, you know, from my culture. Right. You know, with this amazing diva woman. Um, so something else had happened before then, but that was the straw that honestly broke the camel's back. And... Did it take a lot of nerve for you to go confront um, that situation? I mean, you probably have 
agents and friends and people saying, what, what, what do they say? You know, I, I don't even think I talked to my agency at this particular time. I was so frustrated. I was calling my friends. I said, I can't believe that happened. I mean, I was, I was, I was so angry and frustrated. And I, and I've heard this, this mantra, frustration is the ability to do work over and over. And I've heard, I'd heard that for decades. Hmm. And I'm sitting here and I was so frustrated that I was just blind with just, with just anger. And I don't want to say I was blind with anger, but I was, I was frustrated. And, um, I remember calling a meeting and I, and I had spoken to, um, one of the co-executive producers and the senior producer at the time. And I said, I want to talk to you all. I absolutely want to talk to you all. And at this point, I was like, I don't care if I get fired from this job. If this is the job where I am going to be dissed like this, I don't want this job. I don't want it. It's a good place to get to. Yes. Because it's a self-worth moment. Yes. Right. And it's just knowing, like, I deserve that. Yes. They didn't recognize I deserve that. I guess they just need to be told. Yes. You know? So, you know, in this meeting, I said, if there was... If you didn't think that I would want to cook with Gladys Knight, it's your report card and you fail. If there was a reason that I wasn't cooking with her and you didn't tell me, like to prepare me to to help me get there, that's also your report card because you have not allowed me to grow to that point, you fail. And... Um, so, How did they take that? Well, they were sitting there, and I, I didn't actually give them a time to really talk too much at the, when uh-huh. I was because I, I wanted to get this all out. Yeah. Because I said I'm probably going to be fired after uh-huh. this, and <laughs> and I want to say everything that I need to say wow. because I don't want to sit at home saying I wish I'd said this, I wish I'd said that, and I did the ultimate thing that women don't want to do, and that is cry. And I'm sitting there. So, so I invited Daphne here. Daphne is sitting there too, and she's looking oh, at me. It's interesting. To, you brought her in because it's well, you, yeah. It was both of us. Both of you. And um, mm-hmm. so I'm, <laughs> I'm going on and on and on, and I'm looking at her, and she's like, she has this look on her face, like, "Girl, you're on your own." <laughs> <laughs> when you when you're gone, it's just gonna be one of us left. Um, you know, and I got all of this off my chest and I talked about how, you know, you've made us, uh, me and Daphne, you've, you've made us supporting cast and we've done these softballs to the guys. And, um, and I said, it's no wonder that the audience doesn't know us. You don't know the backup singers. You don't know who they are, what they like, who their parents are and all these things about them. You know, so, um, oh, I said all of that. And I, and I was looking at each of them in their eyes and going to each person and talking um, and then after this whole big thing that um, I had just unleashed and just dumped on them, Gordon Elliott just, I, I in my head he stood up, but maybe he didn't. But I felt like he started clapping and saying, okay, you're ready to get to work. Okay, that's kind of appalling, actually. Great, because it had a good outcome. But it's like, well, why didn't you tell me I wasn't ready for work? Right. Why didn't you come and say you're not you're not up to it? Like, Correct. Boy, then that's that's unfair. Right. So, anyway, but then you got to work. But then I got to work, and then in hindsight, and the reason I I don't blame him that 
leading up to this, now my frustration day after day and seeing all of these things and, and feeling like I was invisible and I would just look at him and just grimace. I honestly, just like a kid, you know, like, Ugh. I mean, I, I was like, <laughs> and I was, I would go home and say, what? I am becoming this person that I don't like. Why am I doing this? I mean, it, the, this frustration was affecting me. It was, it was just all consuming. And I, and I was feeling sick in my stomach. It was just, I was like, I don't like this person. This, and so when this thing with, Gladys Knight happened, it was just erupted. But I was being this person that I did not like that wasn't me. And so um, I had to get to this point of just being frustrated. So it's interesting, because the question then is like, why didn't you do it earlier? Right, right. Because you feel you didn't feel good. I didn't feel that I had the power. I gave my power away. I gave my power away. And so in hindsight, after all of this happened, and, and he stood up and says, okay, now you're ready to get to work. The reason I tell this story is because once I took my power back, I was the one who was holding myself back. Gordon and all of these other things that were happening were only my teachers. They were only my teachers. You know, when the student is ready, the teacher appears, and I am, I am all about recognizing my lessons so if it wasn't Gordon it would have been someone else if it wasn't Gladys Knight it would have been someone else so I don't hold them in that space and so when I tell this story and people want to be mad at him forever I'm like no (laughs) you know I'm I'm not mad at him at all he was just the teacher yeah that was there for me in that moment and and that's why I'm able to look at all of these other lessons like that right I I think that since that was an exercise in frustration, I could imagine coming out of it and the final frustration being, why didn't I do this earlier? Right, right. Um, as opposed to, he's a jerk. It's more like, I did this to myself. Yes, yes. And, and I really didn't have to. Right. And now I won't. Right. Because that's why it's a lesson. Right, right. And so um, another sort of frustrating experience that you had, but I'm sure you learned a lot from and. I'm hoping there's a, f- a future in it is um, when you open the restaurant, um, your chicken restaurant mm-hmm. with two and a half years in yes. the works, yes. um, really developing those recipes. But, um, you know, the assumption was big star chef, everyone knows who you are. You have so many eyeballs. There will be so much press. Everyone will know and they will come and they love you. People love you. They do. Mm-hmm. Um, but it turns out that... Um, as we both know. But, dear listener, restaurants are a combination of so many things. Yeah. Their, their location. Um, and so from that experience, um, what did you learn of opening a restaurant that then closed? A year later, right? Yeah, a, a, year? a year later. It took longer to plan than it was open and alive and it's never about the food the food was good i mean the food is the easiest thing when people tell me oh i want a restaurant i'm a great cook that has nothing to do with it yeah there are a lot of bad restaurants that are surviving out there um location is everything i was on a national television show but i didn't i wasn't in a place where i could cash in on that exposure you know i was in Brooklyn, off the beaten path, 
hard to get to inexpensive rent, but there's a reason that it was inexpensive. <laughs> you pay for foot traffic. You right. know, we couldn't afford to pay for foot traffic. Um, I think that it was over. Um, I, I think that the group thought that because I was on television, because of that exposure, that would be enough mm-hmm. to bring people, you know, so putting too much weight mm-hmm. on my name. Um, you, was that painful? You know, because it was about you in a way. Like, mm-hmm. you could wake up in the morning and say, people will travel to Brooklyn for me. They, they traveled to Pock Pock, although Pock Pock closed. I mean, you right. know, they, location is a bit of everything but did that hurt personally or you just it, it was clear to you that it's this constellation of things it wasn't really the cooking and it wasn't right. that people didn't like you but right it didn't that that was not that didn't hurt that didn't yeah. hurt my ego because I could have told them don't rely on my name you still can't I, I in my head I still had to go there and I was going there after the chew and I'd work late and I'd get up again and go to the chew and I was getting four hours of sleep. I've never been so tired in my life, but I also had never been so satisfied. I was so satisfied knowing that I am, you know, training New Yorkers who had never made a biscuit, how to make delicious biscuits. And and these young kids and giving them something that they could value about themselves and so that was part of it too. It was never really about me and being. Interestingly enough, I didn't personally feel rejected. Um, I just asked because we had talked. Yeah, exactly. About- That's what's so funny. And I'm, yeah. I'm sitting there thinking as you're saying this. I'm thinking back. Like, did I feel that? And I didn't because I I I was looking at all I knew of all of the other things that take that it takes for a restaurant to be successful. And I knew that we were struggling in those other areas. So, um, and did that burn you from ever wanting to do anything like that again, or um, be, for the reasons that you say, like you'd like to teach people the culture of food, and yes. you'd like them to experience what you know your heart, your ancestors, your journey. You'd like to have them all share that. Yeah, when I walked away from it, I said I would do this again. I'm glad I had that experience, and now I can I can go on to do it again. You know, it would take an operator who has the experience. I mean, people have come up to me who have money, and they will say, "I'll back you. Let me just do it." I'm like, "No, I don't want your money. Do you know Do you know how to run a restaurant? If you don't know how to run a restaurant, I don't want to do it again with you. I'm I'm not. In, I don't want your money. I don't want you to lose your money. You know. Um, and some people would have said yes to that. No, I don't. No. Yeah, and have a great operating partner is so important because restaurants are, you know, they're complicated businesses. I know. I asked Danny Meyer. Danny Meyer wrote the book, literally, on operations, and and it really is about operations. And if you have the operations, everything else will follow. Um, So now, what, two years later? Well, a year later, um, I think about being accessible to my my fans and I've been to events and someone came up to me recently at an event and she talked about, she, she, she walks up to me and she says six weeks. Six, she just kept saying six weeks. And I'm like, what, what are you talking about? Yeah. What does that mean? That's <laughs> she said, I'm in the Hamptons. There are a lot of African-Americans in the Hamptons for six weeks. Carly, you're not accessible. Would you consider doing a pop-up for six weeks in the Hamptons? Because, <clears throat> 
when you think about our culture and you think about the Hamptons and you think about all of that, that culture of black people going there, you know, decades after decades, and they have to take their own hair people, they want to take their own food, everything that says to them, we are here and our lifestyle is coming with us, they don't have any food choices that they want. So it's just like six weeks. <laughs> That's such a light bulb. Yes. And what a great opportunity. Um, and it's funny. I have her. I, I said, I'll, I'll take your name. And in my, in my contacts, it has six weeks. <laughs> like, like, I don't even remember her name. Like six weeks. <laughs> but, um, but even that, when I think about her and I think about my book and I think about where soul food is and is it accessible in the States, I think about doing a a line of soul food, hmm. you know, uh, frozen, maybe farm to frozen because changing the perception of frozen foods where there are no preservatives and you can get fresher food in frozen than you can in canned and jars, you know. Um, so, and thinking of another, and on, on that line of thought, on that train of thought, you know, my team, attorneys and and um, agents are like, ah, oh, but the, the profit margins are really small. And I said, but I, I'm not doing this for me. I'm doing it because if I am trusted in the food community, and if I had a food line with a major retailer, think about how, um, how I am able to change the lives of African Americans in this country right think about it's such the, a big great it's, reach right it's yeah. it's it's it it's be, more than everywhere. me it's right. not it's not and that whole accessibility when she said that i'm like <gasps> it 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 almost hit me in my solar plexus mm-hmm. i'm like oh my gosh i haven't thought about that although the book makes you accessible and yes. it brings you into people's homes in a completely new way i I say new, you have two other books, but this book is so personal, mm-hmm. and it's bringing a different part of you forward. Yes. So making that part of you and their experience connect yes. in the kitchen in a way that's very special. And not to say that um, great farm to frozen isn't a good idea. I think it's a great idea. I think we don't have enough, we don't value good frozen enough because there isn't enough of it out there. Right. But, but there will be yeah. over time. Um, so on, uh, I, on the show, I have two final questions. One... You did this amazing traveling in the South, and there's lists upon lists upon lists, but is there some uh, restaurant that you went to or place that you got to visit that isn't on any of the lists, and you just tripped across it, and you're like, this is so special? There is one place in, um, there's one place in Jackson, Mississippi, and it's Sugar's Place, and the food is delicious the smothered chicken um fall off the bone so seasoned and i try to do a version in in my book it it comes close but honestly sugar's place is is better i'm gonna okay. I'm, I'm going out there and say her chicken is is better um their greens, the green beans, their black eyed peas. It's so clean. The food is so clean and just really delicious. Perfect. And uh, the last question is, I always ask my guests to pay it forward. Yes. So is there a woman in the world of food who you admire, who's inspired you, who you think everybody should know about and maybe they're not as well known as they could be? Wow. Um 
Tanya Harris, she was in your book. Oh, oh, Tanya Hopkins. Hopkins? Tanya Hopkins, yes. I call her T-Hop. She is amazing. And it was because of Tanya and the work that she did behind the scenes in helping to make sure that Genevieve and I knew the places and the people to reach out to to make those connections. So Tanya was incredible. Hats off to Tanya Hopkins. (laughs) T-Hop! That's great. Well, um, thank you so much for joining me on um, this episode of Speaking Broadly. I have, of course, so many more questions, um, but how can people find you? You can find me on Instagram, Carla P. Hall. You can find me on Twitter. I also have a website, CarlaHall.com. And you can buy the book anywhere that books are sold, and you really, really should. I, um, I've bookmarked the heck out of this, um, and I'm, I'm just... I can't. I sort of can't wait to get in the kitchen and, and make the brown sugar chicken. Oh yes. Um, and there's a cornbread that I want to make, but then that's tied with the angel biscuits, which also seem amazing. And then there's some beans with um, vinegar mustard seeds. Yes. That just speak my language. So I really want to make those. So I feel like I have an entire meal in mind. And there's a, a callaloo soup with some coconut and lime. Um, that sounds like a great meal. So I don't know. I was reading this book at the wrong time of day. Cause I was like, I just, I want to make all of these things. So, um, you guys know where to find me at FW scout on, uh, Instagram. And as always send thoughts and ideas, guests, crit- critiques, um, plaudits, and we'll be back next week. Thanks so much for listening. Thank you for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Just enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. You can connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, and more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.